0: Father in heaven, thank you so much for this week that we've been able to spend together for the counsel that you have given to us so we are not left without chart or compass in this most important work of preparing the world for your return. And as we look at our own lives, as we reflect and contemplate your leading in my history in particular, but also as we reflect on our institutions and what we're doing. Lord, we pray above all that we may reflect Christ, and that we may help reproduce him in our own lives and in the lives of those students you have placed under our care. Please guide us this hour. May you speak to us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So a little bit of background about myself, just so you are aware of the context of where I'm coming from. I was born into an Adventist home in Hong Kong. My parents were both Adventists, they met in college there, and what might be interesting to you, a little trivial fact, is that on my mother's side of the family, I am a fourth generation Adventist. Being in a Chinese culture that is tremendously um, unusual, Uh, my mom's grandparents were introduced to the Adventist faith, and then her dad, my mom, and me, that's... Four generations. So, I was born into an Adventist home. I w- grew up in the Adventist school system from day one. Uh, even in Hong Kong, I went to our Samyuk school there. It was an uh, Adventist school system, elementary school. We moved to the United States when I was six years old, and I went to uh, Loma Linda Academy from first grade all the way until 11th grade. And then my senior year in high school, I went to Washta Hills Academy, where I graduated. And after that, I was um, I was at Heartland College for uh, one term, and then I took some time off formal schooling, and uh, I did a fair bit of mission work and canvassing, and I took some Bible training in uh, short-term programs and things of that nature. And then I went back to college at Washten Hills College. Washten Hills College started in between the time that I graduated from academy and to that time, and uh, I, uh, I I got my degree in secondary education there. And I was a student teacher at Lower Brook Academy for a short time. And then I was a staff at uh, Washten Hills Academy for a, few, for a few more years. And it was during that time there that I was a staff that my wife and I had our courtship We actually got married uh, while both of us were staff at OHA, and after which I went to Southern and got my degree in business in the School of Business, my graduate degree. And my wife also has a fair bit of history and self supporting work as well. Not only at Washington Hills Academy, but she was a student and she worked at Wildwood for about four years, I believe, four or five years, somewhere in there. And so, and now, as a uh, go, going beyond the end of that story I graduated with my degree from Southern at 2000, in 2012 and since that time I have been serving as executive director of Audioverse most of you are probably familiar with this ministry and I've also been a leader with GYC as a vice president with them and also as Debbie mentioned earlier with ASI Southern Union and so in and also have had some uh, affiliation with OCI and so through this brief overview, I think you can safely say that in a true sense, I and my family are closely linked to the self-supporting work of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, and the title of my story this afternoon is Reflections from a Product of the System. And I really mean it when I say that. Um, I have been deeply, fundamentally, irreversibly, I would say, impacted by the influence and the ministry of many of our ESEI institutions, as well as other self-supporting organizations as well. And whats I share all of that with you because I think it's important for you to know where I'm coming from, that I was a student, both academy and college, and I was a staff, and now I am still in many ways closely linked from you know, events like this and ASI, and I, I do a fair bit of speaking, I've been to a number of our institutions to share, and I'm still closely connected with many individuals in this movement, that I, that's the angle, right, that's where my perspective is, from someone who's been in, as well as someone who is working uh, alongside from outside now. And not only that, I have come, I come with somewhat of a background that have, uh, haven't always been in self-supporting work as well. So, I have had a little bit of experience before and after my self-supporting experience. But I think really, inevitably, and you're probably already thinking this, I'm not a mind reader, but my guess is at least the question has come to mind, and that is, so why... Have you decided to stay in the church? Why are you still active in ministry? Why have you chosen a life career, a life path that you have chosen? Because I don't have to tell you that there are many others, many others of my very own classmates and friends who have chosen a vastly different path in their lives. I can't speak about what they think, I can't tell you what their answer might be, but I can share what I went through. I can share my perspective and my story and perhaps um, somewhere along the way, there might be some uh, something that triggers the mind, that perhaps sparks a conversation, a discussion somewhere, maybe questions that can lead to further discovery and study. Uh, I don't claim to have the answers. That's one thing. The first thing I learned from self-supporting work is uh, how little I truly know. And I am not here with the arrogance to say, I've got it figured out. No, I don't. I really don't. But I am here to share perhaps some insights into my own personal experience that may impact some of the things that you do and what you are uh, working with with your students as well. So, I am not a... um, Maybe I should put it this way. I, I grew up not, uh, not prone to rebellion. I'm not trying to puff myself up. This is not humble, humble brag time. You, you understand that, that term. I'm trying to be frank with you. I've always been a fairly compliant child growing up. And, you know, I look at a lot of my friends now and I'm not like many of them in terms of my personality. And if, if, if you have been online, uh, which you probably have on Facebook and where, wherever else. Um, it is not infrequent to see disgruntled, unhappy former students. And many of them are individuals that I know myself and are friends of mine. And some of them are outright antagonistic. And if they are to be believed, our schools don't do anything right. We lead people down the path of tradition, of legalism, of perfectionism, and right into the grass of the enemy, and if they are to be believed, all of our schools should be shut down because they are good for nothing. I am not one of those students. I think you already know that. But at the same time, I feel I would be insincere, less than genuine if I was not frank with you about some of the challenges I experienced as well. So I want you to just understand my perspective Uh, I'm not here to criticize, but I do want to be honest. So how did I get into self-supporting schools, and how did I end up in the system, right? As I mentioned, I was born into an Adventist home, grew up going to Adventist schools, denominational schools, day schools. What happened? Well, when I was in high school around my, well, let me back up for someone who looks at me frequently on more than one occasion they have individuals have come and talked to me and said you must have grown up with the most like perfect ideal home and because for some reason they think that you know i'm apparently doing something right but the reality of the matter is although i was born into a an avidus home and my parents were in the church. And my dad even was a chaplain. And he went to theology training. Culturally, in our culture, it was not... Family worships were not the norm. I did not grow up with that. Uh, personal devotions. Those were not things that were taught me when I was young. And I love my parents. And my parents prayed for me. And I credit them with teaching me a lot of things. And I think they would agree with what I'm sharing with you today. Is that we were largely not taught a lot of these basic devotional practices that we basically, we really take for granted. You know, even uh, Pastor Bradshaw this morning was mentioning about how, you know, you never see a child say, I'm not going to follow the Lord when they're having regular, consistent devotions with the Lord every day. Well, guess what? We were never taught. And so I grew up in a very nominal Adventist home. And I went to Adventist schools, but on the weekends, where was I? movies video games i i wasn't just an avid gamer i was a pirate of illegal games uh with uh, thousands of dollars worth of uh, illegally copied you know copied material and you know you know the sports and the games i was fairly well versed with the quote unquote locker room activities if you understand the euphemism of what guys talk about and how guys behave in the locker room. And that's not totally a, just a um, figure of speech. You know, there were real r- locker rooms and the things that happened in there, you know, we'll just leave them there. But I was, uh, certainly I was exposed to all of these things. I was not a homeschooled child. And so all of this is just background, backstory for what happened. How did I end up going to a self-supporting academy my senior year? Because everyone everyone that hears this story, it's always, wow, you went just for your senior year? Why didn't you just stay? Or why did you not go earlier? So when I was in my sophomore year of, of academy, there are a lot of details I'm going to leave out of this story. But I had um, a fairly, it was a decisive It wasn't a flash, bang, wow type of amazing testimony, but it was a very decisive and clear conversion experience in my life. It was a very uh, concrete decision that I made that I was going to follow the Lord. Through a number of circumstances, people that the Lord brought me in contact with, um, I had a very deep, heartfelt conversion experience. And I was really going through that... First love experience that we read about, you know, about the church of Ephesus, right? You have left your first love. Well, I was, I was in the midst of the, the, the fires of the first love experience. And I was going through some struggles because of those decisions in the environment in which I found myself. Not going to go into all the details about what kind of stuff was going on, but suffice it to say, I realized that that was not a solution. That was not where God wanted me to be. And through divine providence, I came into contact with Chester Clark. You met him last night. Uh, I went on a mission trip with him. And through interaction with him, I found out about Washer Academy. And he was either the best or the worst student recruiter ever in history. The best because I ended up going. The worst was because he never once invited me to go. It just happened through conversation, and this is going to be a theme, this is going to be a theme that I saw in my own story that I'm going to try to bring to the surface, that is that it was through his personal interaction with me on a deeper level that convinced me that it was not God's will for me to remain where I was, and I'm going to go off script a little bit because I was told I have plenty of time, so I hope you're uh, going to stay awake with me. But uh, I was really struggling when I was in Loma Linda Academy during my junior year. I thought the Lord was calling me to be a Martin Luther on campus. I was going to reform my school and save my classmates. And I had these grand dreams of as- and aspirations. I'd like to think that some of that youthful exuberance is still inside here somewhere. But uh, I, have, I have grown a, a bit, matured a bit, hopefully. My wife might disagree. But... Uh, and I, I was hitting a brick wall through a number of instances. I wanted to accomplish great good, but yet I didn't know how. And as I was struggling with some of these, these internal frustrations, the Lord, through multiple or, you know, circumstances, brought me in contact with Chester. And he really pointed me to seek the Lord's will and what was best for me. And I realized at that point I needed a change of scenery. I needed to go someplace different. I need to walk away from the life that was holding me back. And so I made the decision to go to academy. Now, very important distinction between what happened to me and what I think happens to many of our students is that it was 100% my own decision to go. My parents didn't force me. They never twisted my arm. There was no backdoor negotiation between my parents and the administration to you know, visit the school and happen to forget me the day they left. You know, there was none of that kind of stuff. Uh, I went because I wanted to be there. And as a result of that, and I think those of you who have been in this work a lot longer than I have, you understand that that almost predetermines the outcome of the story. And so I realized that I am not... The prototypical boarding academy reformed project that parents drop off for the school to fix. I realized that. I had my issues. I had a lot of growing up to do. But the big difference, I think, for me was I wanted to be there. And as a result of that, it, you know, we talked about presuppositions, right, earlier this week and worldview and stuff. So I came into my Self-supporting education experience with the presupposition that I was going to accept what was taught me. Because I already knew what the bad life was. I already knew. And so I came in, and another aside here, the funny story. I was flying in to Little Rock, and my flight got delayed, and it was a Friday afternoon flight. So I got on a later flight, and as I was taking off, there was the sun was setting, and I was... Um, reading my Bible, and a gentleman next to me looked at me and said, oh, are you a Christian? I said, yes. And he said, oh, what church did you go to? I said, Seventh-day Adventist. He said, oh, is that right? Can I have your Bible, please? He took my Bible and he pointed to several verses in Acts and First Corinthians where it said, you know, the disciples worshipped on the first day and they collected offering on the first day with Paul. He says, see, you're worshipping on the wrong day. At any rate, it was uh, one of those experiences that just confirmed to me, and I didn't have a good answer. And that was what drove this dagger in my heart, because I thought, I should have an answer for that guy. And it was like the Lord speaking directly to my heart, saying, you're heading exactly where you need to go. Except I got off the plane, we were driving back to school, and it was in the middle of the night, and the road got smaller and smaller. And the trees got closer and closer, and we were on a small, bumpy road. And then, what? Am I, are we on a dirt road? And then we stopped, and there was a pickup truck with the lights on in the middle of the road, and a drunk guy was passed out at the wheel. And 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 uh, we stopped, and we called the police. And I thought, where am I? But I went. I got on campus, and it was a, it was a, a shock at first, and my luggage didn't arrive, and there was all of that kind of thing. But within a very, very short time, I realized exactly why the Lord had me at that place. And so, that's where I came from. And I came in with the understanding that the Lord wanted to teach me something. And just like we've heard this week, it's not the teacher's job to force knowledge or education onto an unready mind. Well, I don't think I am exaggerating to say that I came in with a ready mind. And so what did I learn? So what is it that I gained out of my experience? So I went to OHA as a senior, so I was there just for one year as a senior. And my my story at this point is probably going to jump around a little bit because Just to be honest, sometimes I don't remember particularly what category, what, you know, block of time. So from that time on, I was in self-supporting work for nearly the next decade. So as an academy student, as a college student, as a staff, so some of these things might get mixed together. But what did I gain? What did I gain? So, there was a clear contrast with my previous life, and so, maybe maybe one other piece of background information that will lead into perhaps the first point is that when I was going through this phase of changing my life, my sophomore year before I actually came to academy, I, um, I was the first member of my family to choose to be vegetarian. We, we ate meat before that. I decided to give up my games and movies and it was all my own decision. And as a result... I think well-meaning adults in the church began to sort of grasp at this and it became a, almost like, I don't know what the word is, but to, to boost this young man who they thought were making good decisions to put him on a pedestal and say, can you come and talk to our kids? And, oh, you should preach at church. And can you come give Bible studies? You know, we, we tend to have this kind of attitude. And so even in that short time, I was beginning to struggle with pride because none of my friends were like me. I was the one that was studying my Bible and I actually knew where some of these Bible verses were found. And this was before I ever went to, you know, self-supporting academies. And so I thought I was actually pretty special. They asked me to speak and You know, I spoke for various churches, and I got invitations here and there. But one of the first things I learned in self-supporting work was that lesson of humility. And uh, my very first work supervisor is here, Rob Neal, and this has to do with him. (laughs) And I think he still remembers the first day. You know, I came, you know, just vibrant and just so excited to be on campus, but yet inside I was still thinking, you know, I'm all that. There was a piece of me that was thinking that. Until I had my very first job assignment. I was assigned to uh, work on construction and Mr. Neal, as we affectionately called him as students, he, I realized this later because he told me the rest of the story. He wanted to feel me out. Let's see what this guy's made out of. So we went to the back of the, the house. There was this big, you know small piece of siding or sheathing rather of OSB board, and he gave me a, a a screw gun. and said, "Put this up." And it was the most humiliating experience because I had never used a screw gun before. And you know how it is—you can't get the screw in. And it was a metal building. Little did I know that you know it made any difference, but I couldn't get the thing in. And I think at that point he just shook his head and realized this city slicker is. Probably uh, going to be a project for a while. But those kinds of experiences, that's just one anecdote. But there are many experiences throughout my time in academy and later on in college that the Lord repeatedly would place me in circumstances, and many of the times, the, the staff and teachers, without their knowing, probably, I think the Lord just created circumstances calculated to just knock me down a peg. And it was uncomfortable, and it was uh, sometimes aggravating and frustrating, but that was one of the most important lessons I had. I learned, is self-distrust. And I believe that if there was one thing that I could take away, that perhaps is the most important. Don't look at ourselves and think, you know, I, I got this. I'm a professional. Right? I took that class I've memorized those verses. I can do this no we we can't and that was one of the first and the most consistent lessons that I learned throughout my time as a student as and as a staff in um, in my experience in self sporting education but you know, I think we agree that there are certain objectives. We've heard a lot of the objectives mentioned here. And I, I feel like it is worthwhile to bring them up, even if it's briefly. And that is that I came out of my experience in self-supporting education with a very clear view of what the biblical worldview is. I believe we can agree that that is one of the goals of our education, uh, for young people to come out, understanding why they are here, where they're going and what they're supposed to be doing in the meantime. And I am very clear. I came out with a crystal clear picture about what the Bible, biblical worldview is, what Adventism is all about, our prophetic identity, our mission, and how I personally fit within. And you know, it, 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 that, that shaped every decision in my life from then on, from You know, what I chose to do in my graduate studies, the career I'm doing now, even the wife that I chose to marry, and obviously how we choose to raise our child, the values that we have, I can safely say that it is because of the self-supporting education that I received that I possess the worldview that I have. And... And not only do I possess it, I feel confident enough that I can express what that is. And I think that is a a goal that we can say was achieved, at least in my own personal experience. Something closely related to that, but just as important, is a solid, unshakable faith in the spirit of prophecy. And I just have to say, it it is one of the most valuable things. To be able to look at the writings of Ellen White with complete confidence. To have that source of admonition. I don't have to wonder, oh, I wonder what God wants me to do. Well, I don't have to wonder. I just have to wonder, hey, have I found what he said that I need to be applying in my life? And so I can say with absolute certainty that it is because of my self-supporting education that I have the relationship with the spirit of prophecy that I do today. And an interesting aside, just to give you a little bit more context about me, just a couple months before I uh, went to academy my senior year, I had a conversation with my youth group leader at my church, and I kid you not, my question was, what do you mean when you use the term spirit of prophecy? I was brought up in the church, having this education, I was in a minister's home, and I did not know, honestly, I did not know what the term Spirit of Prophecy meant. And that was really the context that I had coming into uh, my academy experience. And uh, I am very thankful to say that I read a great deal of Spirit of Prophecy during my time in school. And of course, beyond that, uh, my personal devotional habits, it was learning how to pray, Not just pray, as in reciting the Lord's Prayer, but claiming God's promises. What does does that even mean? And seeing answers to prayer. You know, I learned all of those things. I saw it in practice. And how to study the Bible, how to give Bible studies, how to do outreach, evangelistic preaching. All of these practical things, I got them. I'm still using them today. So praise the Lord for that. And of course, the work study program I mentioned a little bit earlier—the teaching, teaching the lessons of humility—that uh, never, that never stopped. Uh, it seems working always seems to have ways of uh, teaching us humility. But beyond that, all of those traits, you know, of excellence and all that we do—just because it's going to be covered up with a sheetrock—make sure it's done right. If nobody knows. God knows, right? If it's worth doing, do it right. Um, and the ideas of punctuality and cleanliness and going the second mile and all of these lessons were clearly taught, modeled, and uh, enforced in a kind way. And now I am an employer myself with a staff of seven people and I just frequently hear uh, the voice of my former work supervisors saying like, oh man, I've heard that before and I'm telling my workers the same thing. So a lot of those work ethic types of things, it's like, it's in the DNA now. It's like, can't get rid of it. You know, you you see a job, you go into a house, you look at construction, or you look at someone's garden and you realize, okay, they cut corners here, there, there. It's, it's almost, it's almost frustrating because you never see the world the same again because you realize, you know, other people aren't working to the same standards that you have been taught to work towards. But nevertheless, it is uh, such such a privilege to have learned those things. And of course, the work study program contributed uh, to lower cost of tuition. And many of you know, my wife and I, we have a strange fascination with personal finance. And so saving money, getting out of debt, that's a thing that we uh, have a high value on. And so the fact that it's more affordable, I think that was a wonderful thing. My parents did pay my way through, but if I was paying, you know, the, the, the full amount in, in some of our other schools, uh, I'm not sure they would have been able to cover all of that. And so these are the things that I gained. But I think it's important to make a distinction of what I gained versus how I gained them. Because I think a lot of times we think of, we think of instruction in the sense of teaching in the classroom. Or weeks of prayer activities. Or, you know, getting a guest speaker to come in who's an expert in their field and just breaking it down. You know, I appreciated all of those things. I heard a lot of sermons. I heard a lot of lectures. We had a lot of, you know, chapel talks and and and, and vespers and prayer meetings and weeks of prayers and things of like that in which I gained a lot of valuable knowledge. But those were not the things, If I as I was reflecting for this talk, what was it that just you know, press that mark into the, the, the wax, so to say. It was none of those things. It wasn't Bible class. It wasn't all the weeks of prayer. It wasn't the formal activities. It was always, almost always, things that happen, uh, I don't want to say serendipitously, but that is what comes to mind, but things that occur outside of the norm, unscripted things that occur. So, a conversation on the worksite, sometimes, might be the thing that just makes a difference. But I want to share a couple of um, couple of anecdotes that really made a difference in my life. And I believe this was in, well, most of these, I think, occurred when I was in college. But one thing, just just simply put, is that we came to college and I remember we had this conversation where all the college students were gathered together. And the administration said, you're not coming to church with us. You're on your own. Not in the sense that you are you can do whatever you want. But we're sending you out to the local churches. And you are going to help those churches run the church programs and whatever. And for some reason, that made me so excited. I, I thought, that is, like, we're not going to be supervised? <laughs> like, there's not going to be an adult, like, telling us, Okay, you can do this. You can't do that. Like nobody's a, like we actually have to do it. That was the best experience ever. We had to drive, you know, our church. It was like an hour away, the church I was assigned to, and we did show up the first week. Um, we were gonna play a DVD today. Do, do any of you happen to preach? All oh, my friends look at me like, give me five minutes. <laughs> But that was the kind of stuff that just made an impact. Because after that, you know, we would have Bible studies. We'd have Bible studies with our kids. We'd go visit people in the neighborhood. We did a stop smoking program during the week. You know, on top of all of our homework. It made a difference. Made a difference. And we got put to work. And it wasn't just that we had to do it, right? We had to do it. But it was just the unspoken expectation that the administration had on us. It made us rise to the challenge. It wasn't like, yeah, we know it's gonna be tough, so here we're gonna help you out. No. Nope. It was like sink or swim. Here. Drop you off in the deep end. Here are churches that need help. Be an adult because that's what you are. You know enough. Now go do it. Right? Praise the Lord for that experience. But even more than that, I remember there was um Hurricane Katrina. I think we still are aware of what happened, I think it was 2007, some, 2005? Oh boy, okay, so it's longer than I remember, but Hurricane Katrina came through New Orleans, and I, I remember our school. We packed everyone up, we didn't stop school, we just moved everyone down there for disaster relief. And essentially, you know, we were down there helping and we started to do our schoolwork or whatever, and I just remember thinking to myself, what kind of school would do that? And for me, it made a very deep impact. Nobody ever sat down and had a lecture. Here are the principles of Christianity we are trying to you know, apply in this story or in this particular situation. We just did it. And it made a very deep impression in my mind that we don't just preach the gospel. We are going to live the gospel, even at great sacrifice and great expense to the school because the teachers came with us and they still have to teach the classes. They were sleeping on cots with us. We were still taking showers with the garden hose, you know, like everyone was in it together and we just went because there was a need and it helped us visualize, at least for me it did. We don't just talk about helping the needy. We don't just talk about doing service, the school modeled it. The school did. And there was another experience similar to this that I I reflect on many times, and that is one of our elderly uh, staff members suffered from Alzheimer's. And one day, she got lost in the woods. And our entire school, academy and college, all the staff, we shut everything down, and we went combing through the woods looking for this one precious soul. It was raining, I remember, because my phone died, because it got waterlogged. I had ticks up to my waist, tick bites. I mean, not just tick bites, I mean, we had chiggers up to my waist, and we had, you know, ticks covering our feet. And, you know, we had all of that kind of stuff happening, nobody complained. Because there was a very clear message. Nobody preached a sermon about it. The message was, there is a soul to be saved. We're going to do everything we can to save this person. The National Guard came out. They worked alongside us. They saw the work ethic of our students. Some of us, you know, they were trying to recruit us to join the National Guard. Um, But, you know, those kinds of experiences was what made the difference. I would have years of Bible classes, week of prayer, seminars, whatever. But two days out looking for our staff member. A week down in New Orleans helping disaster relief. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I believe all that. But prior to that, it was just knowledge. It was like, yeah, I can regurgitate. I can put on a test. Yeah, it makes sense. I can prove it. But it didn't sink from here to here until we, I saw with my own eyes a demonstration of the application of the things that we are taught. Now moreover than that, I think this is gonna be really the theme that I'm gonna keep coming back to, is that moreover than just like these institutional activities, even more important than that was the individual labor. I have staff members that, many of them I'm still very close with today, the individual interest, the times walking around campus talking about issues and 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 the care and concern and the modeling of a consistent Christian life, of genuine Christianity, it was really what made the difference. And for me, it's not a joke. It's not just a figure of speech when I say our self-supporting family was like family. It really was like family. And so I feel like I can safely say that uh, I gained a great deal of positive, life-changing things from my experience in self-supporting education, but of course, as institutions run by human beings, faulty human beings, and myself being a faulty human being, there are challenges and there are struggles And so I do want to share a few of the experiences or or challenges and struggles that I personally had that may or may not uh, be reflective of some others as well. But perhaps things that uh, may be relevant to other students that you're dealing with today. And of course, I am not here to finger any individual or institution, but merely to share my experience. And I have been to several institutions. And so the first, perhaps the biggest struggle that undergirds some of the other struggles that all arises from this is sometimes there was a struggle between perception and reality. And for a young person, I have to be honest, it took me uh, several years, really. I was in academy for one year and then several more years in college. It wasn't until sometime later in my college years where I really felt confident In being able to differentiate what was merely my perception versus reality. And what did I mean? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that sometimes our institutions have a particular culture. And the culture can speak even when no one actually verbalizes what we think. And sometimes the culture communicates things that we don't intend And as young minds are impressionable, and there's this tendency to an all or nothing, black and white type of reality, I think perhaps, I know I struggle with it, it's hard to understand where the difference, or where the gray areas are, if that's an appropriate term, or the nuances of perhaps what we are trying to communicate. I'll just give you a couple of examples. one that was later on in my college experience when I had decided to go on to Southern for... Well, let me let me back up. Let me back up. I need, to, I need to set this one up. You know, we talk a lot about true education. And that is a term lifted right out of the spirit of prophecy. And it has certain meaning that is invested in it. But as a young person, without any of that context, remember, I didn't even know what the spirit of prophecy, the term, meant. Okay, Coming into an academy setting, I was still fairly young at the time, 16 years old, I think. And I hear, "Sure education, Sure education. We are following the model. We are applying the blueprint. Without the context that I have now, it is easy to misunderstand that to mean... We've got it all right. We are right and everyone else is wrong. I'm not saying that our educational system is worse or, you know, is not better, but the, the understanding sometimes that is misunderstood, the perception versus the reality issue, right, is what I'm talking about, is that sometimes the unspoken message, I know I struggle with this, is that, okay, everything that I am learning here now, Is the truth and there is no if and but about it and this is the way and any deviation from this is is wrong and you know I don't think anyone has ever sat down and told me that verbally it's just one of those things I picked up just because of the terminology and the way things are and how I perceive the world and coming in as an idealistic young person already prone to wanting to change the world and having a very black and white view like it's either sin or it's righteousness. What else can it be? Right? And so I came in and, you know, there would be, there would be certain issues that, that would come to mind that would cause those kinds of, um, perhaps frustrations or incongruent thinking or cognitive dissonance, if you want to use that term. One example that happened to me was later on when I was in college and I had decided to go on to Southern, I was dialoguing with this particular individual, and the clear message was, it is such an unfortunate pity that you had decided to put your salvation at risk going to a Babylonian university when you already received your education. I don't think, I don't know if that's the intent of what this individual was trying to say. But the message that, and I had come to a point, I had grown up to the point where it didn't, really, it didn't really affect me because, you know, this person was a friend of mine and I understood where he was coming from and I, I can appreciate his good motives. But for a young person, if it was a couple years earlier in my experience, the message would have been clear, if you go to another school, you're going to be lost. And there have been individuals that have struggled with this, that I've spoken with, where, well, if I go to school, well, that's not a a school that applies the tenets of true education, and so I guess I have to walk away from everything else that I've been taught. And sometimes there's this, perhaps, disconnect where, well, I am encouraged not to pursue further education to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, but then we're celebrating individuals that have those degrees when they choose to come work in our institutions. And so the perception sometimes that is misunderstood, I believe, because I, I understand the, the, the right intentions that our institutions have, is that without saying it, there might be a misunderstanding of what the underlying principle is that we're trying to promote. So when we talk about true education, I believe in true education as an ideal, as a goal, as an objective. It is not a checklist. If you have a farm, if you have a work-study program, if you go to bed at 9.30 at night, that's true education. We can have an institution with the best farm, best labs, best deans, and still not be doing anything close to true education. I think we all agree with that, but it's just the way that it's communicated sometimes, it may lead to misunderstanding. And I know as a young person, it took me a few years to really figure this out, and as an unfortunate side effect also, is that sometimes there is a natural tendency to antagonize those that are not within our system. And it may have been alluded to before this week, and I think there are decided efforts to remedy this within all of our institutions, but the idea that we have true education and they don't, it puts us in conflict sometimes with the organized church. and It sometimes gives the impression that we have something you don't have, and that's why we don't want to cooperate with you. And I'm not saying that this is something that is widely prevalent, but I have myself struggled with those feelings individually. And another point related to this idea of the, the issue of perception and what is reality is sometimes there is an unclear distinction between the line of principle, what the Bible says, versus what our, our institutional policies. And it is a danger sometimes for us to leverage scriptural principles to make our case for certain, princi- or certain rules or policies in our institutions that then get misinterpreted as equal to right, what God has said. And I'll just give you one example, and I don't want to belabor this point, but, you know, we have dress codes in our institutions. And everybody picks on our institutions because our dress code is, you know, a certain way. I actually happen to really appreciate our dress code. I think it's great. But my point here is sometimes the way that it's communicated or misunderstood. We have a moral principle of modesty. That is bedrock Biblical principle applicable universally at all times, all cultures. And we do the best we can to apply it in our institutions. And so perhaps it might be skirts, and we have ways of measuring the length, right? But sometimes the misunderstanding comes in where it is misunderstood that students are taught, if you don't wear skirts, you are sinning against God. And the other step beyond that is we also have policies about jewelry. And we have biblical counsel about jewelry. And so it is not inconceivable, and we know some young people that I believe have uh, walked this path, is since I am not choosing to dress in accordance to the dress code with the skirts on campus, I might as well wear the jewelry because it is communicated as equal, equal, equal. Modesty equals skirts equals jewelry. But I know that that is not the intent. But it can be, without even anyone standing up and and saying any of those things, be easily misunderstood. And for me, it took me several years going on into my college experience before I could really confidently express the difference. And as an academy student, particularly those, again, who don't particularly care to be there in the first place, obviously you can't control what they're going to think. But it is easy for them to look at this in the wrong manner. And so all I am saying is that this is one of the issues I struggle with, is that if I had not come in with the predisposition to be cooperative, to want to learn, it could, have, it could have been easy for me to throw the baby out with the bath water. So since I'm not going to live by this one principle here, and this is true education, the whole, you know, kit and caboodle here, I might as well just throw the whole thing out. And fortunately, I'm thankful that the Lord had mercy on me and I didn't go down that road. But the second struggle that I had flows out of this one. And this is something that was alluded to in our message last night by Chester. That is that this is, again, a matter of, it's building on the idea of perception versus reality. And that is sometimes the perception that is promoted in our institutions is that spirituality is the solution for everything. Another way to look at it is that spirituality, or let me put it this way, that any problem that we encounter is fundamentally a moral Or a spiritual problem. I believe in the whole person dynamic of a human being. So we're interconnected. So there is no such thing as, okay, this is not spiritual and this is only physical. I I understand that. But sometimes the idea is if we just study the Bible more, if we just prayed more, if we're more repentant towards God, if we're more fervent in our outreach, then that compensates the deficiencies in all other areas that we are struggling with. And I'll give you an example in my own life. When I was in academy, we had a 5:45 um, morning call, wake up for morning devotions, and it was not required. Okay, the rule was you people had to wake up, but you were never required to have morning devotions. There's nobody standing there with the, you know, with the whip and saying you must have morning devotions. No, it wasn't. That wasn't the rule at all. Even though that's misfrequently, again, the perception was that it was enforced that way but nevertheless i wanted to do that i wanted to have good devotions consistently every day but i i struggled i was falling asleep every morning and i was tired all the time and so when we would sit down for breakfast or lunch or whatever and then this you know frequently the the teachers doing their their job would ask oh what did you read for your devotions this morning i would lie I would come up with some excuse about something I read days before or, or just something else because, you know, that was embarrassing. Uh, but more than that, you know, I, I, had this, I had this mental issue, and I think you'll understand what I'm driving at, is that the fact that I wasn't having morning devotions to me caused me an enormous amount of guilt. I felt guilty. And then... The idea that, you know, how do you gain victory? You have to have your morning devotions to gain victory. But my problem was I wasn't having good devotions. And it was like this double guilt. And then now I'm lying about it when people ask. So I'm like triple guilt. And so, um, so what did I do? I compensated by praying more every night. Sometimes I would kneel by my bed, lights out, my friends are snoring away, my roommates, and I would pray sometimes until 10.30, 11, 11.30, 12 o'clock in the morning. Because my problem was I needed a victory over this besetting sin that was compromising every other aspect of my life. Nobody was telling me this. You understand? I mean, nobody is guilty of causing me to have this guilt. This is an internal struggle. But the idea that was that I was dealing with was if I was only more spiritual, it would solve my problem. Well, you know what the problem was? I was staying up late every night praying and not going to bed. Lo and behold, later on when I was um, in college and I actually had more reasonable hours, guess what? I had devotions every morning and it was no longer a problem. And so the, the, the message, and again... It is of no fault of anybody except perhaps the perception that happens due to the culture is that the solution is be more spiritual. And, you know, as a staff, you know, I've had students with issues. You all have students with issues. And sometimes the issue is not just pray more. The solution is not just pray and repent and the Lord will fix all your problems. No, sometimes there are deep-rooted issues that, quite frankly, Sometimes we look at the student and we're just not equipped to deal with issues in their past. Maybe it's even a physical, you know, chemical imbalance. Or maybe it's, you know, abuse, history of things and loneliness and homesickness. But sometimes the the, the common misunderstanding is, okay, we have to be spiritual. Because we have to be in you know, overcoming sin. And so, whatever issues I have with my parents, if I just prayed more. God will fix it. the bitterness the forgiveness sometimes that can be easily misinterpreted and um you know one of the things one example and this is going to lead to the next point one of the things that one of the the cardinal sins i say that in quote that we we as young people uh understood it to be was inappropriate relationships with the opposite gender. And I am not promoting that we allow young men and women to do whatever they want. I understand the rule and I affirm it. And if my daughter were to ever attend a school, I better hope that rule is still in place. What I'm saying is the perception in the young mind. And the perception is that as a student in the dorm, we hear about a couple that's placed on social or they are you know, sent home for a time or sent home permanently. You know, we're not going to, you know, there's not going to be a public announcement, right? There's not going to be any type of public discussion that's inappropriate. And so what's left to happen? This is just a natural course of things. There's chatter that happens in the dorm. And the most influential students in the dorm, and generally the most influential ones, are not the ones you prefer to have the voice of the or have the ear of all your other susceptible students. They create the narrative. About what happened, it fill the blanks get filled in, and the students amongst themselves create what happened, and there is a perception there again of what happened, when I can guarantee you is nowhere near the truth of the reality. But again, I'm just speaking to you from my experience as a student. I know the other end of the story, and so growing or going through academy, it was the cardinal sin, and so it was almost imperceptibly, I think, I don't think verbally I would ever phrase it this way, imperceptibly, I began to understand that the sin above all sins is to have feelings for the opposite gender of another student in school. And, you know, later on, I actually had that very struggle later on in my experience. And that leads me to the third point of one of my personal struggles as i went through self-supporting education as a student and as a staff and that is that it was tough to ask for help it was difficult to ask for help and in my particular situation at this point i was uh, you know i had i had certain influence around campus i had influence on students i was offered uh, opportunities to speak sometimes but this preconceived notion that i had And this struggle of my personal feelings that I had led me to feel as though I just can't tell anyone. And it was to the point where I was concerned that if it came out, that I would be kicked out. That I would be expelled. I would let people down. And I want to mention that this perhaps is not even the, the bigger issue is not really with the students. I think the bigger issue may be with the staff. That is that we as staff, we have such responsibility for these students and we are looked up to and we're around them so much that if we we feel sometimes the temptation that we let our weaknesses out, that something horrible is gonna happen. We're gonna let people down. Souls are at stake, right? But we're human too. We have our own struggles and our own challenges. And so I was going through this phase and I was depressed, I was losing sleep, I was losing weight. I wasn't able to do my work well. And I was feeling so sinful, to be honest. So during this time, what was the solution? And really, I'm not trying to rush the story here, but the solution to this one problem happened to also be the solution that remedied all the other issues that I was struggling with. And that was what I have been mentioning all through this afternoon's presentation, and that is individual, personal labor. So I had some staff members, some friends who saw that something was wrong with me, and they pulled me aside. They pulled me aside, and they took the time to say, what is going on? And instead of condemnation, which I was fully expecting... I don't know why, but that was my misunderstanding, preconceived notion. These individuals shared transparently with me struggles that they had previously themselves. They shared strategies that they had done. They gave admonition. They prayed with me. They didn't lower the standard. They didn't change the rules. They didn't do anything of the sort. They showed sympathy for me. They shared their own experience. They encouraged me with God's word. They prayed for me. They held me accountable. And you know what? I don't even remember everything that they said. But it was monumental for me, those interactions. And of course, there were other staff members and other interactions besides this. This is just in this one particular anecdote was I came away with a liberating feeling because I realized something. What I realized was, perhaps moving backwards through my list, is that I don't have to be afraid of asking for help. Is that other staff members are not superhuman. They are like we are, with like passions, and that we are in it together, right? And we are able to support one another. But moving back beyond that, the spiritual struggle that I had, I realized, you know what, it might not be entirely, the solution may not entirely be just pray more, be more spiritual. There were strategies, exercise, diet, health, rest, you know, there are different things, asking for forgiveness, things of that nature. But undergirding all of this, going all the way back, is the fact that I had misconceptions, misunderstandings, and notions that were far detached from reality because of my filtering of what the nonverbal uh, culture was saying to me. And the solution to that for me was an individual, or individuals in this case, demonstrating and modeling what that really should look like. A person with failures, a person with foibles, and someone who has made mistakes, but yet has grown walking with their Lord down this path and growing in their experience, when I saw that, I realized, oh, so what I had previously misunderstood, that's not the case at all. But that there are differences, right? There are things that I didn't fully understand. And so, uh, in addition to that, there was the, The very clear, clearly communicated message, again, it might not have been exactly in these words. It might sound trite, but it was the idea of unconditional love. That there were staff members that cared about me no matter what I had done, whatever the mistakes was. It wasn't that they were going to condone mistakes, things that, you know, inappropriate things that were happening, but it didn't change their regard and their concern And at that point, there was a liberating feeling where it was like, okay, I can get through this. And it was a clarity that this is what we are trying to demonstrate to our students. It's not a list of tenets. It's not just a series of facts. It's not even, you know, the gospel and the 1888 message. We went through all that. But it wasn't until someone in flesh and blood embodied it, modeled it, lived it, shared that gospel, before I realized, oh, I think I finally get it. You know, later on, I was a staff member and I I taught. And I realized that if I were to actually have the same impact on these students as these individuals had on me, that I couldn't just fake it. I had to actually be in it for the right reasons. I had to actually give them what they deserve. So this, perhaps, is the greatest challenge of all, and that is, who's got time for that? Who has the energy to invest in the lives of the students in such a sacrificial, individual manner? That was done for me. And, of course, there's also the challenge of certain students don't respond to certain staff. And some, many students, I would say, they're not receptive at all. Right? So I'm not saying that there is some magic bullet here that everyone just do this and that's going to solve the problem. Everyone was just more attentive to the individual needs of the students. No, that's not what I'm saying. I understand that is already the intent and the desires of the hearts of our teachers. But in our institutions, everyone's got three, four, five, six, fourteen hats. Right? There's a lot of demands on the time and the energies. And so this is a challenge. And not only that, there are high levels of turnover of staff in our organizations as well. And as a staff member and as having interacted with other staff members, another challenge that I have perceived is that oftentimes staff members come in and they themselves have not fully figured out where the values are. How do you align this? What's principle and what's policy? And how do you express this in a winning way And how do I, how am I transparent with these students? And how do I relate with them? And they, you know, as staff, we're trying to figure this out. And then we've got a new batch coming in the next year. And then the new batch coming in the next year. And then the students are turning over. And so I understand the challenge. I was right there. This is not intended to say this is bad. I'm just saying this is fact. This is how things are. And so in my particular experience, I recognize the challenge as a teacher. Figuring out my lesson plan, you know, having it done, that's not enough. Working with my students on an individual basis, sometimes that wasn't enough. I had to go the extra mile, hunt them down in their dorm rooms, haul them sometimes. And perhaps through some of those efforts, the Lord was able to reach some heart through my effort. And I pray that for what the Lord has done for me, I was able to uh, do for someone else. And so I want to conclude here with this quote and then a summary thought. And this, I believe, if I were to reflect back on my experience in self-supporting education, both the, the challenges as well as the successes as a student and as a, and as a staff, what was the? if I could boil it down to what was the absolute most critical thing, what was the one thing that made the difference for me? I'm not saying nothing else is important. Everything is important. But if I could boil it down to the most critical point, it comes from this quote in Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 58. It says, Let it never be forgotten that the teacher must be what he desires his pupils to become. Hence, his principles and habits should be considered as of greater importance than even his literary qualifications. He should be a man or woman who fears God and feels the responsibility of his work. He who would control his pupils must first control himself. This was the point that really spoke to me. To gain their love, he must show by look, by word, and by action that his heart is filled with love for them. And So if I could summarize it in this way. How has self-supporting education affected me? Why did it work for me? It was because... It was in self-supporting education that I came face-to-face with the gospel. The gospel not merely as an intellectual tenet, not merely as a sermon or as a series of Bible studies, but as the gospel demonstrated through the lives of individuals who showed that they loved me, regardless of what I had done. Having a good system of education is vitally important. I think we need to do our very best, apply the model, the pieces of the puzzle. The Lord has not left us ignorant, but I would venture to say that even if we had all of the pieces in perfect proportion, put in perfect order, it is not enough. If there is not that individual personal relationship, that personal labor that Christ's method requires the reaching of the individual's hearts. And so I'm thankful for those who have played a part in my experience. I have been changed eternally for the better because of what I have gone through. And I know that the Lord is in this work. And that There are many other young people who would share my testimony with their own unique experience and twists as well. Uh, but the Lord is doing a great work, and I pray that we might continue to press forward by the grace of God to reach many more for him. Let's bow our heads together as we conclude with prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you see us as feeble, faltering, damaged creatures. Lord, you have given us the system of education in such a way that will, that is best calculated to restore us into your image. But Lord, you have not given this work to angels to do, even though they would do a vastly better job. But you have called us, individuals with like passions, with similar problems and weaknesses, to serve one another. Lord, in the process, Lord, we know you are seeking to reform and to change us as well. Lord, in this nicest work that you have given to us, this most precise and most delicate work of working with young minds, Lord, I pray that we may not grow weary in well-doing, for we know that we shall reap if we faint not. There is a rich harvest, Lord, you have told us. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And so as we go about our labors to bring in the sheaves of these young souls, for the kingdom, and to prepare them for service to reach others. May we ever remember what Christ has done for us. And may we demonstrate by look, by word and action, that we love these young people. That we might manifest the love of Christ as best we can to them. That they, in the end, might be in the kingdom with us at last. Thank you, Father. I pray your special blessing on all of these dedicated, sacrificial teachers, leaders, and um, deans, and others, that you will be able to utilize them in a mighty way to reach many young people for you. Bless us the remainder of this Sabbath day and the remainder of this convention We pray In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.